you're here on a great day. I mean, so this is everything you want to know about Bethel is happening today. We are observing communion. We are uh, going to, uh, you know, uh, put on the, um, the theater uh, of the sacrament of baptism here in just a little while. One of the things that uh, marks us, makes us distinct as, as a church, uh, a gospel uh, New Testament church, uh, baptism. And we are starting a study in the uh, the book of Colossians. It's a letter that Paul wrote. It's, it's there in sort of the last half of your New Testament. So you've got Romans, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. That's where Colossians falls, right after Philippians. Um, and so we're going to start that today. And one of the things we do here at Bethel, if you're new, is we uh, take a book of the Bible, mostly. This is a, our usual practice. And we'll walk through that book of the Bible uh, together from the beginning to the end. And so I'll, I'll give you a little preview right now. Colossians is four chapters, and we are going to spend 14 weeks in Colossians. It doesn't take 14 minutes to read Colossians, honestly. Uh, but we, th- there are so many important things that Paul writes to this church in Colossae that are so relevant for Bethel Bible Church 2,000 years later. And so we're going to we're going to linger in it for a little bit. We're going to look at some of the things that Paul has to say to this church. One of the introductions that I read, Kent Hughes said this in his introduction on Colossians, and I, it was, it's, a great, it's a great way to uh, orient us. He said, when we study Paul's epistles, we see that each has a dominant theme. In Romans, it's justification by faith. In Ephesians, it's the mystery of Christ and his church. In Philippians, it's the joy which Christ brings. In Colossians, it is the absolute supremacy and sufficiency of Jesus Christ as the head of all creation and of the church. And there's no book in the New Testament, including John's Gospel, which presents such a comprehensive picture of the fullness of Christ. Accordingly, there's no writing better equipped to draw us upward than the book of Colossians. Colossians 3.1, if you then have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Colossians 2.6, therefore as you have received Christ Jesus, so walk in him. So we study the letter of the Colossians. May our view of Christ be so expanded and permanently impressed on us that we will, as a habit, seek those things which are above. And that's my hope for the next 14 weeks, is that we we would peer into Colossians and that God's Spirit would take God's Word 
and orient our minds to the supremacy of Jesus above all things in our life. And I think it's a great time, a great moment to do that, to remind ourselves of it. So this is what I'm going to do. I'm going I'm to read Colossians 1, uh, the first eight verses. And then I'm going to pray, and then I'm going to talk about uh, Colossae for just a moment, and then I'm going to talk about why the letter was written, and then we'll look at these eight verses, and then we'll go out and do baptism. And we're going to do all this. You're not going to believe how short I am t- today. We'll see. All right, here we go. Colossians 1, 1 through 8. Here's what Paul writes. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers, or maybe to the holy and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you've heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed it in the whole world, it is bearing fruit and growing, as it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He's a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. If you would, would you bow with me? Father, help us this morning, draw our eyes upward to your son, Jesus. And we pray that your word this morning would not return void. And we pray this the only way we can, in the name of your son, Jesus, and by the power of your spirit. Amen. Well, a couple of things about this book that really help us, it will orient us as we go through this um, study of this letter over the next 14 weeks. One is um, that Paul never visited Colossae. It is uh, the church that he writes to that he never visited. Um, In fact, there are two letters written to the church at Colossae in the New Testament Uh, And Paul never visited that church. The first one is this book, Colossians. And and the next one is a letter that Paul writes to Philemon. Philemon is a member of the Colossian church. In fact, it may be that the church uh, meets, that the whole church of, of, of Colossae meets in Philemon's house. Colossians, or Colossae, is this town that if you were in Ephesus... And Paul was uh, for a three-year time period. In fact, he was in Ephesus longer than he was in any other uh, uh, place in, in his missionary journeys. And he was in Ephesus for three years. But if you went 100 miles west of Ephesus, which Ephesus is on the coast, there in 
what is modern-day Turkey, and you went 100 miles west inland, you would come to three cities in the what they called Lycus Valley, and, and there's a river that runs through there. And these three cities uh, popped up around the river. And one of those is Heropolis, one of those is Laodicea, and the third of those is Colossae. At this time in history, Colossae is kind of a small place. It, uh, the road, the, 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 the trade roads were built nearer Laodicea and Heropolis, and so those cities grew. Um, Colossians, Colossae, it, it, it would have uh, probably shrunk, become more rural, uh, agrarian, but that's where it is. And it's likely what happened is, is you had some folks from uh, Colossae, you had some folks from Heropolis, you had some folks from Laodicea, they would come over to Ephesus because that was a, a, a city that was on the port, and they would, they would trade, and while they were there uh, during Paul's three-year ministry, they would have heard Paul teaching, and it's likely that, that a lot of these folks would have uh, heard Paul teaching, and they would have been converted, and, and, and that's the case. And then they go back, and they would have started churches in their, in their cities. Paul would have trained them up or discipled them and, and sent them out back to their cities to start a church, which brings us to a man. We just heard his name here when we read those first eight verses. Verse 7, if you'll look at it, just as you learned. So, so they, heard, they heard this word of truth. They heard the gospel, the grace of God in truth. And they learned it from Epaphras. Our beloved fellow servant, who Paul says is a minister on your behalf, or maybe on our behalf, Paul says, of Christ Jesus. And Epaphras is a man who had come from Colossae to Ephesus. He had been saved under, uh, you know, listening to Paul. He got converted. He believed the truth. Paul disciples him, commissions him, sends him back to Colossae where he plants a church along with Philemon, and this church is going great. And it, it's going great for five years or six years, something like that. And then all of the sudden, a crisis hits the church in Colossae. And not just Colossae, but probably Laodicea and Aeropolis, probably in these three cities. But Epaphras is a man who knows this is a problem that I need to seek counsel about. And so what he does is he will uh, leave Colossae and he will travel all the way to Rome because at this time Paul is in prison at Rome. Now, it's, it's kind of a halfway house prison. Uh, it's, it's not the um, imprisonment that will be at the end of his life, but it's, he, can, he can move about freely. He just has to sort of stay under the watch of the Roman guards. And so, Epaphras travels from Colossae all the way to Rome because he's got to ask Paul about what to do regarding the problem that has sprung up in the church. And when Epaphras gets there, he tells Paul all about the church in Colossae. In fact, that's what Paul has been saying here. So, look at it again. Start in verse 
3. And, and now you'll, you'll see Paul has received a report about this church. He says, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love you have from all the We heard about you. We, we, we heard all about you. And how they heard about him was from Epaphras. And Epaphras goes and spends time with Paul. And he begins to tell Paul, hey, Paul, we've got, we've got a serious problem that's happening in Colossae. And so what Paul does is he will sit down to write a letter to this church to address the problem that's going on in the church. Now, here's what the problem is that's going on in the church of Colossae. That the message of the gospel, this word of truth that he says is the gospel where you hear the grace of God and truth from, and you'd heard it from Epaphras, which had heard it from me, and, uh, and I heard it from the Lord Jesus. And, and, and the problem is that the message of the gospel was being threatened because there were some teachers that had come in, and they were teaching something different, although they were using very similar words. They were teaching something different about Jesus. And if you teach something different about Jesus, you ultimately are teaching something different about the gospel, which means the way in which we're reconciled to God was being distorted. What we can discern from what Paul says, if you've got your Bibles, you can just skim over it. Like I said, this is only four chapters. You got Maybe one page or two, you can flip around and I'll, I'll show you. But one of those has to do with a word called fullness. Uh, look at uh, Colossians 1. If you skip down to verse 19, you can see Paul addresses this. There, there was some offering. So these people come in, the, 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 the false teachers, they came in and they were offering some kind of fullness. But it was a fullness different than different than the gospel. And so Paul clarifies, verse, chapter 1, verse 19, he says, For in him, for in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. If you want to define fullness, we've got to go back to who Jesus is. And who Jesus is, is he is the fullness, all the fullness of God. Everything God was, Jesus was and is. God is, Jesus is fully God, all the fullness of God. Just, when you have Jesus, when you come to Jesus, when Jesus is your hope, you are not missing anything else. You are not short anything else in life. There is no other fullness. There is nothing else you need to be full if you have Jesus. This is what Paul's saying. You could go to, um, go to the next chapter, uh, chapter 2, uh, look at 9 and, and 10. Uh, it says this. We'll start up at verse 8. This is, this is kind of the heart of, of what he's saying. He said, see to it 
writing to the Colossians. Nobody takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. We'll talk all about that in a couple of weeks. According to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, not according to Christ. For in Him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in Him who is the head of all rule and authority. Jesus is everything. And anybody that would come along and tell you that, listen, Christianity's great, and Jesus is really great, and that's all a good start. But I have a, the secret to your dissatisfaction They'd come along and say, well, listen, I know you believe in Jesus, and I know you say you're a Christian, but don't you have that nagging sense that something's missing? Well, believe it or not, I know what's the missing thing, they would say. And I, let me say this. This isn't just a Colossae problem in the first century. This is a today problem in the 21st century. There are people offering you the secret, the thing that seems to be missing from your life. You go on Facebook today and you'll find it, the offer. So one other thing, let me, let me show you and then we'll, we'll walk through these uh, uh, bits. The, the other is spiritual insight, knowledge, uh, a secret knowledge goes hand in hand with the, with the fullness. It was part of the false teaching. If you look at, uh, if you're still in Colossians chapter 2, look, um, it, it says this, that, you know, he, he's saying, listen, I, I'm writing to you, Colossians 2, beginning verse 2, I'm writing to you so that you be encouraged and that your hearts are being knit together in love. And he says, to reach all the riches of full assurance and understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And I say this in order that no one may delude you with a plausible argument. Verse 16 of chapter 2, it's not in what you eat or drink or the festivals you keep. Those are shadows. Christ is the substance, he says. Don't let people offer you something that puffs you up in your own self, he'll go on to say. And all of this was about trying to transcend what was physical, the physical world, trying to detach yourself from the world and all the consequences that came from that. And Paul says all these things are human teachings. They're human teachings, they're human rules, they all have the appearance of wisdom, but it's all self-made, man-made religion, and there's no value in it. Now, let me just say real quick, and then we're going to get into this. You might be sitting here thinking, well, I don't know if that's a problem for me. I don't know that I'm susceptible to any of those things. 
I mean, I'm a practical person. I'm a, you know, I'm a deeply practical person. I mean, who isn't a practical person in this day and age? I'm a practical person. To which I would say, that's really great. I'm, I like practical people. Here's what Paul's getting at. This is what's going to challenge us over the next 14 weeks. Paul's going to challenge us about how we think with what, what we think with regards to our life. That when we wake up in the morning, what, what's the first thoughts we have? What are the most important things of our day? What is it that captures most of our attention? How do we set our priorities? What is it that I'm worried about? Where are my affections? But Paul is going to, in four short chapters, do everything he can in the Spirit through this writing, do everything he can to disrupt how we think practically about the world. That our lives would be oriented fully, completely, chiefly by who Jesus is and our relationship to him. And that wouldn't just be some thoughts we have on a Sunday morning, but that the truth of who Jesus is would begin to invade our life in all settings, in all circumstances, all our thoughts and all our actions that, that we would say about ourselves, we're becoming more full of Jesus. This is what Paul wants. In fact, this is what Paul will pray. Look at what he says. He says, I'm Paul, I'm an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. I'm so tempted to give 20 minutes on the will of God. What he means by I'm, a, I'm an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. And I have that rant, but I'll get to do that next week because he's going to talk about it again. I am an apostle of Jesus of Christ Jesus, by the will of God. There is a call on his life. And that call is the will of God. This was not Paul's idea. It wasn't Paul's design. It was the inescapable will of God in his life. And Timothy, his brother, to the saints, to the, to the holy and the faithful brothers in Christ in, in Colossae. And let me just say, you, you could put your, your uh, we could put Bethel Bible Church in here. In fact, this is one of those circular letters. Paul meant that this, you know, hey, read it in Colossae, send it over to Laodicea, make a copy of it instead of Colossae, write Laodicea in it. Circular letter. It could come right here to, 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 the, to the faithful uh, to the holy and faithful brothers and sisters in Christ at Bethel. It's a legitimate way to read that this morning. 
holy and faithful. Grace to you. And peace from God our Father. Nothing incredibly remarkable here. Paul begins most of his letters in this way, some fashion of it, except what becomes old hat for us because Paul does it is actually deeply rich in theological. And Paul already tells us here, listen, you've got to know grace before you know peace. You've got to know grace before you know peace. You've got to know grace before you know peace. And then he says, we always thank God. This is a, a giving thanks with joy. It's a, uh, in fact, the word, you know, the word is Eucharisto. Eucharist. It's another way to talk about the Lord's Supper that we just took a little bit ago. We were, we were giving thanks in the eating of bread and the drinking of the cup. I always give thanks, a joyful thanks. I always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when I pray for you. But Paul's prayer life here is on display. He, he has this God-dependent posture in prayer. He knows his own life, his own life is marked by the gift of God. He never takes credit for his life. His life's always owing to the Father. In fact, in Galatians 1.15, he says this. He says, but, but when he who had set me apart before I was born and called me by his grace, pleased to reveal his Son to me, it, it's always this God-dependent. I'm praying to the Father in the name of the Son because I know who I am. I'm a man marked by grace. I'm a man called by God. It's the same for every one of us. And his faith, is, it was never grounded in, in, in anything that he had done. It wasn't grounded in the, you know, all the great study he'd had and the great education he had. It wasn't grounded in anything except God's grace to him. And it's important not to miss the hint here to Paul's prayer life. Paul not only had a God-dependent posture, he prayed always. It, it reveals, it's one thing to, in the things you say to demonstrate your God-dependence, is another thing, your activity. He is always praying. He's, he's revealing by his actions he's God-dependent. He, he depended on God and spent time, significant time in prayer. I think, I think it's one of the ways to know if you are growing deeper in Christ. If your roots are, are sinking deeper into Christ than into the world. I talked about a few weeks ago on a Wednesday night up here. How do you grow spiritually? One of the things he said, look, I, looking in the mirror is a terrible way to understand if you're growing spiritually. I mean, it's a, it, it's a ter you know, don't, 
It's like, do I have a fever? I don't know. Let me feel. You can't tell. It's hard to tell. But I would say, I think one of the ways you look is, okay, am I a person who prays? Do I, do I pray? Do I really believe prayer? What are you sinking the roots of your life in? See, the more and more dependent you are on prayer, you, you, you need it, you, you have to have it, you, you can't live without it. That's how the, the fruit gets produced in our life. That's what he's going to say. He's, hey, I, you, you, the, the gospel's come to you. You're bearing fruit. It's growing. In fact, it's bearing fruit all over the world. Your roots are going deeper and deeper. Prayer sinks you. It, it anchors you. a couple of thoughts on prayer. Here's three observations from study of the Bible, particularly the New Testament. We see believers praying daily and at certain times of the day. Sometimes it's alone. Sometimes it's in the company of other believers. There was a practice, a, a, a discipline of praying. But prayer wasn't just a 911. It wasn't just for emergency purposes. There was discipline of it. A prayer. That there's spontaneous prayer. Quick, quick to go to the throne of grace. As things come in, as, as crowds gather, as, as I'm trying to learn something or discern something, or I'm about to meet with somebody, that we pray, we take the moment, we'd. We'd be in prayer. We'd take that moment right to the throne of grace. In the middle of a conversation with my child or before a difficult conversation with my spouse or I pray. There's scheduled prayer, there's spontaneous prayer, there's corporate prayer, time that we would gather and pray together. Seek to do that every Sunday morning. That's why we have our elders that come and we pray corporately together. Well, notice what he prays about. He says, I've heard, in verse 4, I heard of your love and your, your faith, your love and your hope. Paul loves this triad, faith, hope, and love, uh, faith, love, and hope, and uh, faith and the love, the faith in Jesus Christ and the love for all the saints. And let me just say it this way. Faith in Christ and love for the saints, those two things are inseparable. If you have faith in Christ, you have love for the saints. If you have faith in Christ, you'll have love for the saints. Which by Paul here, he means the church, the gathered church. There's no 
Christianity, the faith in Christ leads to a love for the saints. He's going to define that love here in just a second, but then I want you to see faith and love arise out of, come out of, look at verse 5, because you have a faith in Christ Jesus, you have a love for the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Hope. Where does your faith come from, this growing faith in Christ? Where does your love, this growing love for the saints come from? It comes from hope. It comes from the hope that you have. Hope, this expectation of something hoped for, looking forward to with great eagerness and desire. Fifty-three times the word shows up in the New Testament and is always translated hope, always. Paul says in Romans 8, it's hope. Hope that is seen. Hope that seen's not hope. Who hopes for what they see? Romans 15, may the God of hope fill you so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. What is this hope? The hope laid up for you in heaven. Well, it's the hope of the coming and appearing Lord Jesus. You know, as we took communion this morning, and Jason read the scripture, see, eat and drink of this in remembrance of the Lord Jesus Christ, and we'll do this until he returns. It's the reminder that he is returning so we talked about on Easter, the, the hope is it's not that we die and we'll go live in heaven and, and live on a cloud and, and be a, an angel. That's not the hope. The hope is that, that the trumpet will blow and Christ will come back and our bodies will be raised and made new and glorified and we will live forever with him. And the more you have that hope kindled in your life. The more you're aiming at it, the more you will find yourself full with Jesus. Well, we'll pick up here next week because we need to go baptize some people. But let me just say, he talks about this, this grace of God and truth. And he's called it the word of truth, the, the gospel. See, it's fitting this morning, and I'll, and I'll tell you how, how we do this as a church. This is why communion and baptism were given to the church that we would continue to observe these. And we do. And what it does is it illustrates to us, this is the truth. It's a truth in a, in a nutshell. It's a symbol. It's a, it's a picture that we can hang on to that reminds us of the truth. And so when we take communion, here's what we're doing. We're reminding ourselves of something. And when we observe baptism, we're reminding ourselves of something. 
It's a truth, and it is a truth that is inherent in the gospel. This is the gospel. This is the truth. This is the grace of God in truth. And what it is, is it reminds, when we come in and we take communion, here's what we're reminded of. We're reminded that we're here not based upon anything we've done. We're here and we are gathered as a group of a bunch of sinners who are in desperate need of salvation. And the only way we can be saved is that Jesus, the Son of God, came, took on a body, and died on a cross and shed his blood. He was the sacrifice. So we don't come in here where there's a lot of things we don't observe routinely because what we observe, the pictures that we're reminded of are, this is, this, we didn't do this. Jesus did this. We, we don't come in here with all our stuff. We, we don't come in here with all our good works. We, we, don't, we don't come in here in any other posture than a dependence upon what Jesus has done to save us. It's why we take commitment. It's why we're reminded of it. And in baptism, we're reminded of the truth that you die before you live. You die to sin before you live to Christ. That you're, that you're dead Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, you were dead. That's how you were born, dead in your sin, dead in your trespasses. But Ephesians 2, verse 4, but God in his mercy. And that when we believe in Jesus, we've believed that he died in our place as well. We go down into the water. And that we've been raised with him to new life. So it's no longer I that live, but Christ that lives. My, my life's not mine, it's his. And he lives through me. As we think about the truth, that's what Paul means. The word of truth, the gospel, the grace of the truth of God. And that this would, would be consuming in our life. It would be filling, we would continue to be filled up with all that Christ is. So we're going to go out there and we're going to see the people. They're going to go in the water and they're going to come out and you'll be tempted to think, well, this is a church service. It's probably all about decorum and we ought to just say, oh, amen, but quietly. But that's not what we're going to do. Because this is a truth to be celebrated at the top of our lungs. So we'll go out there. All the second hour people, they're going to come in and they're going to be the amen quiet people. We're not, right? We know better. We're going to overwhelm the second hour out there. And they're going to come out of the water and we're going to clap and we're going to holler and we're going to encourage and we're going to celebrate the picture of the gospel truth played out in front of us. Please stay. Please join us. For this. Father, I pray you'd help us this morning to celebrate well the gospel, the word of truth. Father, fill us up with your son Jesus, who is the fullness of the Godhead. 
Father, in Christ we lack nothing. And I pray that as you kindle our hope this morning, you would fan it to a flame that consumes us as we long for the coming of your Son. The hope that's laid up for us in heaven. And that the truth of what is eternal would overwhelm all these things that are temporary. Fill us up, Father, we pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus, and by the power of your Spirit. Amen. If you'll stand with me.